0: Good morning. John chapter 18, verse 28, is where you can be turning. We'll start reading there in just a moment. We have it is it is right what is in the bulletin. Our our goal is to look at a text that spans from John 1828 down to John 19.15 this morning. A fairly huge passage before us to look at. Uh, But we're going to do it like we had the last couple of weeks. Our goal is to focus on one particular aspect of what's happening here uh, in in these events. So we'll read in just a moment, we will not be thinking together this morning, for example, about what Jesus says concerning his kingdom, the nature of his kingdom. We won't be thinking about that. The next time that we come to John, that will be our focus. Uh, This morning, our, our desire is to try to look with understanding at the role that Pontius Pilate Is playing in the midst of this trial and his crucifixion. There's a great deal that John, in writing this, is giving to us. And our task is to ask ourselves what is it that God would have us see and understand and learn as we watch what happens here through this man, Pontius Pilate? Um, Because we read. some of this last week, it may be familiar to you, but we will read all of John eighteen twenty-eight through nineteen fifteen here in just a moment. Let me remind you of some of the details here. Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea at this time. And John's account of Pilate here gives us yet another chance to remember something that's true of all four of the gospel accounts, which is that they are not simply trying to put down a list of all of the events in Jesus' life. That's not their intention in giving us these gospel accounts. They're giving us account of Jesus' life and ministry, each of these men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the service of a particular point, of particular points that they're holding out to us. And John's purpose, he gives to us at the end of chapter 20 of his book. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what's driving John's choices as he presents to us this account of Jesus' life and ministry, as he decides what to include and what he will ignore. So, for example, here, you'll notice as we read, John does not describe what we know is true, that Pilate initially takes Jesus and sends him to Herod Antipas when he learns that Jesus is from Galilee. John doesn't mention that here. He doesn't give us any of the details of Herod's attempted interrogation of Jesus in Luke 23. He puts us solely in front of Pilate here as he confronts Jesus. And this is why I think it's important for us to keep in mind the fact that John has a goal in how he's painting this picture for us. In the course of these these arrest and trial events that we've been seeing, John has been giving us several particular pictures of what Jesus is facing. So we've seen Peter be ashamed to be associated with Jesus. We've seen the Jews, the true sons that they are of their ancient Israelite fathers who had murdered the prophets God sent to his people. We've seen the Jewish leaders here show complete disregard for law and justice as they put on whatever show they needed to in order to get what they wanted. We saw that last week in the hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership. And now John shows us Pilate. Pilate is fairly famous for a number of the things that he does and says in what we'll read in just a moment. But if we're thinking about quotable moments for Pilate, I imagine there may be one that stands above the rest. Uh, It's the quotation that were given in verse 38, he asks a question, and he's quite famous for it. Pilate is the one that utters 2,000 years ago the question that characterizes our own time quite well. It's true that there is nothing new under the sun. Pilate's the one that asks the question, what is truth? And you can tell in his question, it's not an attempt, it's not an actual question, it's not an earnest attempt to grow in his knowledge. It's asked to dismiss the subject. Uh, There's, you may know the name from your history classes, Sir Francis Bacon, does that name ring a bell from classes in the past? 1597 Francis Bacon writes an essay and he opens it with a reference to Pilate. It went like this. What is truth, said jesting Pilate, and would not stay for an answer. This is what we see. A lot of people have tried to read Pilate's heart in this and make guesses at whether what we're seeing is arrogance, what is truth, or whether it is uncertainty. Is he asking this question with sadness in his voice and regret, or is he asking this question with cockiness in his voice? I'm not sure that it's helpful for us to try to make guesses about that. We can't know, we're not told. But what we can do is what I want us to do this morning. What we can do is to notice that this Roman governor, who cannot account for the existence of objective truth, yet has to continue to breathe and live and act and make decisions in this world. He is showing us this morning, and what we'll see, an inescapable reality for all of us. And for anybody who has decided that there is no such thing as truth or that truth cannot be known, what do they have to do then? If there is no truth, all that is left is an assertion of power, one person over another. Pilate is left then to simply determine for himself what ought to be. If truth is not or cannot be known. In other words, Pilate must be a law unto himself. There's a word for that idea. That's that's the definition of the term autonomy. Autonomy literally means self-ruled or to be a law unto yourself. The Old Testament book of Judges repeats the phrase describing that time. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But the problem with an autonomous outlook on life and reality is that trying to think of reality in those terms doesn't make it so. Reality does not do us the kindness of bending to our opinions about what it ought to do or what it ought to be. We are, in fact, created beings. We are creatures. And try as we might, we simply won't manage to bend reality to our own imagining. And so, as we watch Pilate together this morning, the question I would suggest that we we watch it through is this one. What, What can we expect to see in someone who is trying to live in the skepticism of verse 38? What can we expect to see in someone trying to live from the perspective that says, truth does not exist or truth cannot be known? And my friends, I want to suggest to you that it's quite useful for us to think about this question. We are surrounded, you know this, we are surrounded by the same claim that we hear Pilate utter in our text. And no matter how false it is, and even how ridiculous a notion, in fact it is, when it surrounds us and bombards us, it can sometimes begin to creep into our thinking and our living. It can start to feel reasonable in this place or that. It's amazing how how capable we are of being permeated by the world of ideas. And we have to remind ourselves that while truth can be suppressed, and we do suppress it, and while reality can be denied, what's happening in those instances is tantamount to the toddler, who covers his face and thinks that because he can't see you, you can't see him, and therefore you can't do anything to him. Reality will win that battle every time, won't it? So we don't have any need to panic on that question. And far from panic, we need, as Christians, to be ready to notice for ourselves and, as God gives us opportunity, to be ready to point out to others the signs of God's reality coming out in the lives of his opponents, in spite of themselves. We need to be able to notice that those who make claims like Pilate's going to make will always wind up doing what Pilate winds up doing here. They will always wind up betraying the true nature of the case by their living. They won't be able to help it. And that's what we see this morning. In spite of Pilate, in spite of his sense of autonomy and self-determination in life, and therefore in this situation with Jesus, objective truth forces its way out of Pilate in a series of displays. And if we notice those things, we're able to take note of what we can expect to see anywhere that fallen humanity tries to live independent of the God of truth. This is what we'll see. Before we go any further, let's hear this read again I'll be reading John 18:28 all the way down through 19:15 if you're able to stand for that reading would you please stand with us for the reading of God's word i'll be reading from the english standard version <clears throat> then they led jesus from the house of caiaphas to the governor's headquarters It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. What can we expect to see when someone made in the image of God tries to deny the reality and knowledge of that God. There are doubtless many things, but there are a few of them that I would point out to you this morning because we see them on display in this man Pilate and how he engages with Jesus and the Jews. The first thing that we see this morning is this. We can expect in such a person, and we find it here in Pilate, That we will encounter in this man the persistent image of God in him. The scriptures are clear to us. The image of God is imprinted upon us. We are the image of God walking and talking on the earth. This creates for us an inescapable impact. Not of God in general, but of the truth of God upon us. The truth is... What's emphasized, for example, in Romans chapter 1, it speaks of sinners as people who are engaged in a constant battle to, it says, suppress the truth. The wrath of God goes out against all the unrighteousness of unrighteous people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You may have heard the common illustration of that as it happens. That it's, it's a lot like being in a swimming pool with a big beach ball and trying to submerge it under the water. What happens with that thing? It keeps popping back up to the surface and we have to grab it again and try to force it down again. This is the kind of effort that Romans 1 is describing and it's what happens with God's truth in us. Pilate can deny it as much as he wants, but the problem he's going to face is that his own life will constantly betray its existence. And indeed, his life must constantly betray the the existence of the truth of God because he has been made in the image of God. Now, to see this happen here with Pilate, we have to understand that his question about truth is much more than just an intellectual claim. It's a profoundly moral claim as well. What I mean is, if truth is inaccessible, Everything that is connected to truth is also inaccessible. If truth is inaccessible, then moral judgment is inaccessible too. As truth goes, so goes the categories of good and evil. This is something that the postmodernism of our own day has actually showed quite well and understands very well and has pointed out repeatedly. If there is no objective truth, then judgments are simply matters of subjective perspective. Which means that claims that I might make about right and wrong are really just an attempt by me to try to control someone else's behavior. It can be nothing more than that. It, nothing more than an assertion of power. And in fact, that's exactly what we're told today. Almost 200 years ago now, Frederick Nietzsche gave voice to that. He was one of the the, uh, the line that has led to where we are today, the men really enjoyed recently a study of a book that walked through that history. It was very helpful. Nietzsche argued back then that truth is a function of power, not of reality. And in our own time, someone by the name of Voldemort said the same thing. There is no good or evil, only power and those too weak to seek it. The fact that Voldemort suffers from the disadvantage of being a fictional character doesn't stop him, and what he says there, from being a very helpful witness to this common outlook today. That is exactly the way that this relationship is thought of and understood. And what we need to recognize is that, in fact, it's a valid argument, this connection that they're holding out. It's true that if there is no truth, truth cannot be known, then moral claims are pure subjectivity. But this is where we do well to notice that each and every one of us, even those like Pilate here who claim to reject the attainability of objective truth, all of us find within ourselves an inescapable sense that there are things, things called justice, for example, That there, there is a standard of right and wrong that isn't determined by the individual. I can see it. And I cannot get around the fact that I see it as something that is good in and of itself and desirable. We all object when justice has been violated in my case. We all sense that it's true and we hate it. The question is, what accounts for that inborn, inescapable sense or awareness. I remember reading a number of years ago, C.S. Lewis in one of his books pointed to this universal human trait. And I went back and found where he wrote that. This is what what he said quite a while back now. He said, these then are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. And secondly, that they do not in fact behave in that way. They know the law of nature, they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe that we live in. End quote. And so far what we're talking about here is the first half of what he just said there. We have inescapably this curious idea that we ought to behave in a certain way. And we cannot really get rid of it. It is hard to miss in the text this morning that almost the entirety of Pilate's behavior in this text is driven by this very thing. Pilate shows the objective reality of a thing called justice. He shows it to exist and he shows it to be important to him. Even as he has just denied the possibility of truth. He surprises the Jews in verse 29 of chapter 18 when he opens the proceedings by demanding to hear details about their accusation. We saw last week, they come to this expecting that he's just going to rubber stamp whatever they've brought to him and move on. And he's not willing to do that. And when they balk at this and they respond vaguely to him in verse 31, he says, well, then I will have no part in this. Take him and judge him by your own law. In verse 38, after interrogating Jesus, what does he say? He says, I find no guilt in him. Now you look at that, and you look at 37, and you look at it again, and you look at 37, and you go, huh, despite claiming not to be able to know truth, somehow he does think that not only do the words guilt and innocent represent realities, but they're realities that can be discovered. If he could live out his worldview consistently, all that would matter here would be expediency. All that would matter would be the desire of the person in power, which in this case is him. But instead, we see Pilate stubbornly fighting for something that we would call justice in this case, even when it creates inconvenience for him personally. And by the way, it does create a lot of inconvenience for him personally. Do you notice the track that Pilate is having to go through over this this early, early morning? Jump with me through a few verses here just to sympathize with him a little bit. 1829, Pilate goes out to them, right? They won't come in so that they're not defiled. Pilate goes out to them, 1829. Uh, Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again. Verse 38, he went back outside. Uh, Chapter 19, verse 1, he takes Jesus back inside and has him scourged. Then verse 4, he brings Jesus back out again. Verse 9, he entered his headquarters again. Verse 12, he goes back out and tries again to persuade the Jews. Pilate is the governor of this region, and he is sweating by the time this is done. This happens over the course of six hours. But he is engaged in a lot of work himself. It's very inconvenient. It's also a lot of pressure to be fighting against, which means he is pursuing his conception, something he identifies to be justice. He says over and over, Jesus is not guilty. He's pursuing this in the face of tremendous popular resistance. What in this unbeliever do we find that would lead to such voluntary self-inconvenience, even while he's trying to claim that truth is an unknowable category? What we find is that Pilate is living on what a man in decades past, Cornelius Van Til, described as borrowed capital. Pilate is living on borrowed capital. The mind that is hostile to God cannot account for reality and for absolutes like justice. And yet he also can't help but live in that reality. He is a part of God's creation, bearing the very image of God. Nothing he can do about it. And so someone like Pilate will inevitably claim that justice exists and is worth pursuing even though justice cannot exist or be attainable if truth is unknowable. He's living on borrowed capital. He can't help it. And in doing that, Pilate is serving for us as an example of every human being who has ever lived on the face of the planet. It's sad for us to think that there are ways that even we ourselves, even, even in our walk as Christians, can fall guilty to this kind of inconsistency. Can't we? But we see it in the world all the time today. In one breath, the insistence that truth is relative. And the very next breath, crying out with righteous indignation when we are lied about. We will insist that morality is relative. And then we will object passionately when we are harmed or stolen from. And we'll insist as we do it that that wrong is not just a matter of my opinion. No, no, no. It is real. It is objectively true. But the stated philosophy already denied the existence of objective truth. What is this as as it happens? It's the beach ball popping up out of the water again. It's us proving in spite of ourselves the knowability of God's truth, the existence of his truth, and the reality of our failure to obey it. We ourselves, to our great dismay and frustration, are exhibit A in the demonstration. It's what we can expect to see in a person who claims to be living an autonomous existence. I mean, you can set your watch by it. That over and over again, the reality of the image of God will disprove their their claim of autonomy. That's the first thing that we see on display here as we're watching Pilate. The second thing that we can expect to see in such a case is equally inescapable. We can expect to see, even in the face of, perhaps, tremendous arrogance, as we might see here in Pilate, we see it. It's the fear of the Creator that has been rejected. The human conscience bears witness that we are people who exist under authority. And it bears witness to us that there is something to be afraid of in that fact. We're told things in God's word, like Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has placed eternity into our hearts. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 2. In fact, if you would just for a moment, look over to Romans 2 and find verse 14. What Paul is doing there is he's describing the Gentiles. He's speaking generally about people who do not know God. And he he says things about the functioning of their consciences. Listen to what he says, Romans 2, 14. He says, For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. What does he mean by that? Well, he tells us in verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their, <coughs> and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Stop there. Well, What is the picture that he's giving us here of mankind? Even in our rebellion against the one who has made us, we have a certain degree of awareness that there is a law over us, that there is a standard. There are things we ought not to do and things we ought to do. We bear witness with our lives that we perceive such things. And as our conscience accuses us in our lives, we also come to understand that there is reason to be afraid because that's the case. Which is why in every man-made religion, you have means by which the gods must be pacified, don't you? There's always a sense of some anger to be appeased. And because Proverbs 28.1 is true, which says the wicked flee when no one is pursuing them. I've always loved that picture of wickedness, the suspicion and the fear that one must live with if one chooses a path of wickedness. Because that's true, there's often a great amount of fear associated with false religion, isn't there? Well, Pilate puts that on display here in what happens as well. Pilate is a Roman. Come back to John 19 if you're still in Romans 2. John 19.7 points something out about Pilate. He has just laid down his verdict. Take him for yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Of course, he's being sarcastic. They could do no such thing. They're not allowed to crucify him. His point is, I'm not touching this. You are on your own because I find no guilt in him. But then in verse 7, for the first time in all of this, the concept of the divine enters into the discussion. It hasn't up until this point. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And then it says in verse eight, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. What they have just said upsets Pilate. Why is that? D.A. Carson makes a suggestion that represents a great number, quite a consensus when he suggests this. We can't know this for sure, but I think there's some evidence here. Carson writes this, as cynical as many senior Roman officials were, many of them were also deeply superstitious. To a Jewish ear, the charge that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God would be taken as a messianic pretension. But to a Greco-Roman ear, the charge sounded quite different. It had nothing to do with blasphemy and presented no threat to the Roman Empire. Rather, it placed Jesus in an ill-defined category of divine men, gifted individuals who were believed to enjoy certain divine powers. If Jesus was a son of God in this sense, Pilate may well feel a twinge of fear. He had just had Jesus whipped. And we should add to our mental image of this too, what we are told about by Matthew. Matthew twenty-seven nineteen adds this little detail. It says, besides, while he was sitting, that's Pilate, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So he gets that put in his ear while he's trying to reckon with these things. Pilate is getting reasons to sweat here. And we're told that he has just been made more afraid. So that interestingly, he comes back to him and the first question is, where are you from? Fear for what reason? He knows that this is an innocent man and he wonders if there's something different about this man. And I do suspect that the, that the Jews' statement about son of God likely contributed to this fear, but even if that isn't the case, even if it only comes from his wife's warning, Pilate now has the notion in his mind of the possibility of divine retribution for killing Jesus. And we see then this second display, that a person, notice, that is convinced that truth is theirs to determine, theirs to create, perhaps, A person who's bought that lie will still inevitably find himself acting as if. There are in fact realities of goodness and justice that are recognizable, we've seen that already. But furthermore, they will still inevitably live under a fear that they can't quite get away from. A fear of retribution for wrongs committed. That fear drives Pilate here, but only so far. The, the third and final thing we see Pilate exemplify in this this morning is really striking given the first two that we've seen. It, it is the sad but inevitable conclusion of a life lived under the, under the delusion of autonomy that we're seeing him display. We've seen these things that he inevitably exhibits up to this point. Pilate's conceptions of justice and goodness will be certainly warped from their very beginnings because they aren't grounded in the revelation of God's word. But as we've seen, nonetheless, he will have those things in mind that he recognizes as noble, as right. Have you heard Pilate over and over again, stand on the notion of innocence and that it matters. I will not punish this man because he is not guilty. He exhibits an awareness and a care For his own principles, for moral principles, and yet in the end, Pilate, along with all of those that he represents here, Pilate is forced to experience something, and this is the third display that we see. He's forced to experience that he is powerless to live out his own convictions. It's exactly as Lewis was pointing out in that quote that I read to you just a bit ago. That. At the very same time that we have an inescapable sense that there is an oughtness out there to be conformed to. At the same time that we recognize that, we also find that we cannot manage to live up to that oughtness. It's the great hypocrisy of the human race. It's the great inconsistency that we exhibit in every day that we live. And so what we find is that this man who has in his own mind genuinely pursued the matter in pursuit of justice and has concluded definitively that Jesus is not guilty of the charges presented, what happens in the end? Pilate resists the pressure for a time. He declares Jesus not guilty in verse 38. He even tries a middle-of-the-road tactic where he says, Jesus isn't guilty, but if you'd like, I'll, we can treat him like he's one of the guilty, and I could just he could be the one that I release to you in the Passover custom. They won't have it. In fact, the Jews, think of last week, we saw pretending to care about Roman insurrection laws. These Jews now stir up the crowd to demand the release of an actual political insurrectionist. Mark 15.7 tells us that Barabbas had in fact participated in an insurrection against Rome and had murdered in the midst of that effort. But the chief priests compel Pilate to release the man actually guilty of the crime they're pretending to accuse Jesus of and to care about a great deal. Anyway, Pilate keeps pushing back. Right? He says again in 19.4 that he finds no guilt in Jesus. And again in verse 6, I find no guilt in him. And again in verse 12, he makes efforts to release Jesus. But when the Jews imply in verse 12 that they will bring this to Caesar, the pressure is too much for him. Look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Even the convictions that Pilate thinks he has and that he no doubt would have felt Proud of. No one walks around proud of the notion that they live a life with no convictions whatsoever. Pilate has convictions and he's doubtless proud of those things. But here he proves that even those convictions that he has, he who denies truth, he is unable to live up to. At this point he tries to act like it's not his doing. So Matthew 27, 24 has Pilate bringing a wash basin out and washing his hands in front of the crowds and saying, I am innocent of this man's blood before he hands him over to be crucified. This is what a life that proclaims itself to be autonomous will inevitably produce. It produces idolatry, self-worship to be specific. To live as a law to myself, is in the end to live a lawless life. John put it very simply in 1 John 3 when he said, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And this really leads us to a place that's helpful for us as believers, as those who do not deny the reality of truth, the the, the reality of the God of that truth. This leads us to ask ourselves some questions. I would suggest to you that there are a number of ways that God in giving us this picture of Pilate is not just telling us what happened. He is equipping us to walk after Christ who is himself the way and the truth and the life. So there are some questions that we ought to think about as we're considering what we're seeing here from Pilate. Are there ways? In our own lives where we are thinking and living as if we were autonomous creatures. Now understand, this is not necessarily the same question as the question, where do I find sin in my life? Those are going to come together, but they're not exactly the same question. Two people, even two believers, may have sin in the same area of their lives, And yet one of them be in a far more dangerous place than the other at that moment in time. Let's pick out an actual example. Let's say that Jack and Jill are both harboring sinful resentment against someone. They're both doing it. But there's a difference between them. Jack is doing it. But as he's doing it, he is conscious of the fact that God has declared it to be sin And that that declaration in fact applies directly to him. And he may even persist in that sin for a time, but it weighs on him because of what he knows and and confesses. Because even if he doesn't feel like attacking that sin that day, he knows he should feel like attacking that sin. And he knows that he shouldn't wait for his feelings before he does so. In other words, he's in a place, even as he's living in this sin, Where his conscience is poised to convict him, to weigh him down as he is rebelling against God in this way. He is on the path to repentance, in other words. But Jill, oh, Jill, Jill harbors this sin. But you know, she's also thought about it for a long time. And she's decided that these circumstances with this person are really very complicated. And that she's put up with wrongs against her for way longer than most people would. And what's more, that person doesn't even realize that she's hurt Jill. And that's how insensitive that person is. That's how selfish that other person is. And most people in this case would not have borne with this as long as Jill has. And what has started happening in Jill's thinking? Somewhere along the way, Jill has begun to think and thus to behave. Again, not in every place in Jill's life. We're never so consistent as that. But in this place, she has begun to behave as if she has some warrant, some authority of evaluation. In truth, she has come to think of herself more highly than she ought to think. And every moment that she is having the thoughts and giving herself to the thoughts that I just described, is a moment that she's distracted from what is actually the very simple and straightforward call of God to submit herself to him. To remember that good and evil are not categories for my interpretation and application, they are binding law that stands over me. That reveal the character of God to me. So that even when there is sin in my life, great safety comes from simply the deliberate conscious conviction of the law of God as objective and impartial as it makes demands on my life. And with that, then we're helped in a couple of ways as we see Pilate here. We are equipped, number one, by the example that we've seen that everyone's still in rebellion to God as the origin and author of truth is living with proof of God's existence and his claim upon them. Everyone in rebellion to God is living a leaky life. Evidence of their error leaks out of them. Every time they appeal to justice or display moral indignation, they betray the borrowed capital of the Christian worldview. They deny it, and yet they cannot help but live upon it in moments. They cannot help but borrow from it. That's a helpful thing for us to notice when we see it. So that's one way that Pilate has helped us. But another way that he's helped us should be that in watching him, we are led to revisit our own patterns of life and to search ourselves with the question that we've asked, where am I living? As if I were autonomous. As if I can write pardons to myself in view of my extenuating circumstances or can find footnotes in God's law with my name on them. And my friends, be reminded this morning of something that you know in principle to be true. And that is that those commands of God, you think of of the particular one that you are resisting, that you're struggling against, you know that the commands of God that you are struggling with, they are exactly what you need for a blessed and fruitful life. They are what we need. They are are good for us. They are medicine. They are food for us. Very often, there are physical experiences that we have in, in our physical lives that can kind of image for us. Realities that are also true spiritually can be very helpful. And this, I think, is one example of that. I thought of a a struggle that I used to have when I was younger growing up. I struggled with low blood sugar. And often when it hit, one of the things that would happen to me is I would feel nauseous. So that what I needed right then was to eat something. But in that moment, eating was exactly what sounded awful to me. That sort of thing happens when we are sick sometimes, doesn't it? We have to remember The same is true in regards to what we're seeing here. Sin creates spiritual sickness in us. And in those moments where we find a command from our perfect and loving Heavenly Father, faith calls us to ignore, to resist the distaste or resentment that we might feel as a result. That's what faith leads us to do. And why do we do it? We don't do it because of faith in faith, we we don't hold some some worldly definition of faith. We do it because we know He is trustworthy. He loves us. His commands are life for us. We know His wisdom. We know that we were created for nearness to Him, for walking in His ways. Remember the words of Psalm 19. Let me read to you Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. My friends, is that true of the law of God in general, in its entirety? It is true. If it is true of the entirety of God's law, it is true of every single individual thing that he would lead you to in your life. Every call that he would place upon you individually. And that place that you are wrestling with him, where God's spirit is bringing conviction to you, that particular area where your flesh is trying to find a footnote in The law of God. These statements are describing that particular place as well. So that you could reread Psalm 19 and replace the phrases that describe the law of God as a whole, you could replace them with that particular command of God. God's call for you to forgive that person, God's call for you to humble yourself, God's command to you, without exception, for you to love your spouse sacrificially. That call for you teenagers to obey your parents and submit to them even when it's difficult. What's true about those particular intentions of God for you? Well, it's what we just read. What's true about those particular things is that they are, quote, perfect for you. They will make wise the simple. They are more desirable than gold in your life. As you strive to keep that thing, to deny what you feel and instead to obey, you will find that in it there is great reward. Those things are true of every place that God speaks with authority into your life. This is a great gift to us that God would remind us of not just the inescapability of his truth, but the fact that we need it, we must have it, and that it's trustworthy. And so I pray that we're reminded this morning of the truth of Psalm 25.3. I'll end with this. The psalmist writes, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Those who deal in treachery, they shall be ashamed. Let's pray together. O oh God, you have shown us what is good and what you require of us to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before you. Father, help us not to walk by the measuring stick of our own feelings or our own understanding. We thank you for the solid foundation that you have given us to walk upon, the foundation that takes you at your word, that believes that you know best and do best in everything. And that believes, therefore, that it is to our everlasting good that we live lives consciously submitted to you. We thank you for those things, Father, and we pray as a church family, Lord, show us where in our lives we are living as if we were autonomous beings. Show us where we're standing in judgment over you and your word and your law. We ask you to bring conviction and repentance, Father. And we ask it knowing that you are the one in the business of restoring what is broken and of setting free what has been made captive. And so trusting you, we come to you with these requests, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.